0: That's publichealthquestion at jhu.edu for future podcast episodes. Today, I'm speaking to Dr. Derek Angus, chair of the Department of Critical Care Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. Dr. Angus is leading an innovative international study of treatments for coronavirus infection called an adaptive clinical trial. In our discussion, he explains what this means and how... Adaptive clinical trials can help get answers to critical questions much faster than traditional clinical studies. Let's listen. Dr. Angus, thank you so much for joining me. Tell me what you were doing before the pandemic.
1: Ah, uh, before the pandemic, I was trying to have a normal life. Normal for me. I'm an ICU doc. I run critical care at the University of Pittsburgh. And I've also had a long interest in running clinical trials particularly in fields such as sepsis, which is quite similar to COVID.
0: So I understand you had already started a clinical trial for severe pneumonia. Tell me about that study.
1: Sure. So I was part of a group of experts, that, or so-called experts, that were pulled together uh, to try to do a debrief on H1N1 10 years ago. And the fact that no one ever really managed to generate very good randomized trial evidence. And after a whole series of meetings, that led to the vision for creating a so-called adaptive platform trial, which I can speak about later, but it's a type of trial that could be in place before a pandemic and then could just flip into pandemic mode.
0: So I got this. People were worried after the pandemic flu of 2009 that, people weren't able to start clinical trials fast enough to know what worked. Yeah, And so they said, let's start a trial before the next pandemic. And did they do that? Did they start a trial before the next pandemic that could be immediately turned on when there's a pandemic?
1: Yes. So that's the exact design. It's a modular design that runs in so-called inter-pandemic mode. Tackling severe pneumonias because we know the most common pandemics are viral pneumonias. And then you flip into pandemic mode where you can bring in new modules, testing things specifically about that pathogen, while also continuing to address standard questions about supportive care, the supportive ICU care for these types of patients.
0: So, who funded a trial for the next pandemic that you have? up and running now with this pandemic?
1: So we got a lot of funding outside the US. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So we got a 30 million euro grant from the European Union. And then the Australian, New Zealand, and Canadian equivalents of their NIHs have
0: all supported the trial too. And the trial is not just at the University of Pittsburgh, is it?
1: No, so I'm on the International Trial Steering Committee. We helped design the trial right at the beginning, but we have it up and running in about 13 countries around the world. And some of the lead universities that came together to work on its design were Oxford, University of Utrecht, uh, Imperial College London, Monash University in Australia, and the University of Toronto in Canada.
0: So you got all this funding. From these countries that were worried about the next pandemic, you started a study in severe pneumonia, and then the novel coronavirus hits. And at some point, you start to think, "This is why we started this study." Is that right? Now is really the moment when we have to flip the switch, and we're going to be using this. Do you remember the email you sent that said, "Like, you know, what? What was that like?"
1: Well, so this study is actually an official WHO pandemic study. So there wasn't just one email. We were in close conversations with uh, many folks watching right from December when things were first coming out of Wuhan. And so then everyone started scrambling. And I'm the first to admit that we got this trial up and running, we would have been better positioned if it was COVID-20 and not COVID-19. Mm-hmm. We could definitely have done with another year's worth of working the case out. This, yeah. this idea that we were coasting in into interpandemic pandemic period would be a misnomer. Yeah. We, were, we were sort of just getting ready when COVID-19 arrived.
0: So, so you've got to flip the switch. Now, you mentioned... This is an adaptive trial. So I want to pause there and have you explain what that means. What what is an adaptive trial? You know, I think of a standard trial being half the people get the treatment, the other half don't get the treatment, they're randomly assigned, you see which group does better, and eventually you figure out whether something worked or not. What's an adaptive
1: trial? Yeah, so there's two or three key points. So the underlying science is something called the Bayesian inference model, and it runs where it's constantly adapting over time so that it can test different therapies. It can drop therapies that are not performing well, and even during the trial, it reshuffles the odds of being assigned a therapy based on how well that therapy is performing. We thought that was really important for pandemics because we also knew that people often don't like the idea of being randomized. There's this real moral imperative to try something. And so we deliberately have a design that when you're in this program, you know that the program, even while it's running, is preferentially assigning the best performing therapies most often. That's one key piece. The other key piece is because we're testing multiple therapies at the same time, it's like um, going to a, a restaurant menu, and there's a starter, main course, and dessert. And you can imagine several choices within each, and you pick one of each. When the trial begins, only one choice in each is the usual care, and so... Even if you had three choices in each, that's actually 27 combinations, of which only one 27th is usual care. So unlike the trial you said, where 50-50 is getting so-called placebo or usual care, Only 127th gets only usual care. Nearly everyone is getting active treatment, and then it moves towards the best performing.
0: And you're able to do that. The math works out that it is just as statistically valid as the traditional trial. Is that fair to say?
1: Right. So you're asking how do people feel about these so called fancy Bayesian statistics? And I would say that this would have been intolerable as recently as five to seven years ago. But thankfully for us, statisticians and regulatory authorities have got much more comfortable with these adaptive trial designs, adaptive platforms, and use of Bayesian statistics.
0: So the way I understand this is that, let's say, there is a, a drug you're testing as part of this study. Someone might get it, when someone else might not, randomly assigned. Over time, if that drug starts to work, more people will be assigned to get the drug than not to get the drug. And because of the math, the studies, uh, statisticians, um, and the rules might find much sooner that the drug actually works than if you had just done the traditional way of half and half and just waited till the very end. Is that a fair summary?
1: So that's a fair summary of half of it. Okay. the The only problem with that analogy is. If it's just a two-horse race, yeah. actually, the traditional trial design is probably the best. Okay. Where this is important is when you're testing across multiple different options.
0: So, so explain that it's not just one medicine, it's one medicine or what, as an example?
1: So, for example, let's go back to the, the menu option. Okay. You could have three starters, yeah. three main courses, and three desserts. And you're trying to find what's the best combination of starter, main course, and dessert.
0: And so if the medication might be the starter, what would be a main course of dessert?
1: I'm sorry. I didn't explain it well. So let's imagine the starters are antivirals. Okay. Okay. And you've got three different antivirals plus no antiviral, mm-hmm. and then the main course might be drugs that manipulate the ACE two receptor, which is I see. which is where the virus enters the lungs. Right, and then the desserts could be uh, trying to blunt the host immune response or ways to adjust the ventilator.
0: Even it could be any, it's, it's any. So not even a medication at all.
1: It doesn't even need to be a medication. The current there have been international guidelines for the care of COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And they currently make best practice statements because there's no RCT evidence for 54 things that you do for a COVID-19. I see. Every one of the 54,
0: you could imagine trying to find, that could be like a course. Got it. So if it's just one drug versus not, It's just as well to do the old-fashioned way. But once you start saying, we've got a few options for this kind of therapy, a few options for that kind of therapy, and you could do both together, plus we want to have a study on which is the best ventilator settings, plus some other dynamic of treatment, then what you don't want to do, it sounds like, is tie up 10 hospitals studying one little thing, tie up another 10 hospitals studying another little thing. And with your trial platform, you can study them all together. And the math works out that you can make judgments about these things independent of each other. Is that
1: fair? Yes. So let me give you an example <clears throat> that might make it easy. In our, in our menu, with three starters, three middle course, and three, there's, that's 27 different combinations. What we want to find is the top one. When the trial begins, we've no idea as we go on, we begin to get an idea that a bunch of them have no chance of being in the top. Right. They're almost certainly going to be near the bottom. So we stop spending time assigning patients to those poorly performing ones. Now, that means we are surrendering the ability to say whether something is 24th versus 25th. We're putting all our energy into trying to work out what's first versus second. So we're moving the power of the study to the best performers, like March Madness. You don't let every team play in a league. Right. You give most games to the teams that keep doing the best.
0: But you're not trying to figure out who's uh, 63rd and who's 64th, for example. Exactly. Got it. And so now this study is going. I think uh, you've explained it very clearly. I really appreciate it. And how many different courses do you have in the menu that you're now treating patients with across multiple hospitals, across multiple continents?
1: Yes. So we already have, have one course that's testing different antivirals. Another course that's testing different doses of steroids, which is the most used general drug people are using to suppress it. Another course of what are called targeted immunomodulators, uh, such as interferon or IL-6-RA, et cetera. And then we're about to launch another course of managing the hypercoagulability that people are reporting. And then, let's see, uh, we're about to launch a course on vitamin C on top of that. And uh, oh, and convalescent plasma. Convalescent plasma should be starting within about one or two weeks in the probe
0: that's great, and let's say in the course of the study, one of these really starts to work well. you yeah. know i mean it it's really looks great for say convalescent plasma, like you just said. Do you have to wait till the very end to figure that out, or does the study like you get a special you know beeper goes off and it says, "Hold on a second, this is something you've got to go tell the world,
1: yeah. A beeper goes off. So each individual question, uh, they're all tied to their own what are called Bayesian thresholds for superiority, inferiority, and equivalence. And so if any one drug is just outstripping the others, even if the trial is running, the people in the trial start getting that drug more often. But then as soon as it crosses a pre specified boundary, it hits a so called statistical trigger that the SMB is told immediately.
0: And that's, that's uh, the group that's overseeing the trial to make sure it's done. I'm sorry. The wow. yeah.
1: Yeah. Data Safety Monitoring Board.
0: Yeah, and, and it's publicly announced. And when do you think you'll start getting results from this today? I understand you have a, a few hundred, a couple hundred patients right now, and you're enrolling them. Yeah. How frequently?
1: Yeah, we're enrolling them close to about one an hour right now. And we're hoping okay. that will ramp up the chief medical officer of the national health service in britain just sent a letter out asking every hospital in britain to participate wow. well. okay so we are you can imagine it still takes a while to get sites the contracts signed to get them up and but we're expanding rapidly so we hope that enrollment will go up except one also hopes that fewer patients will have covid-19 right so it's we want to enroll as large a portion of patients with COVID-19 as possible. Fair enough. And on average, any moderately sized treatment effect will trigger an announcement after sort of the 600 to 1,200 patient range. So we would, if things continue as they go, then uh, sometime in the summer, if something is doing well, we would hope to announce. It's still not
0: It's not tomorrow. Right. But then once the announcements come, they may start coming one after the other because you're not just studying one thing.
1: And it also helps to end questions too. Uh, Equivalence or inferiority, it means people don't need to worry about... I mean, right now, people are scrambling to work out how to produce drugs that might not even be useful.
0: Right. Let me ask you this one last question. Let's say you have a study that shows drug A works and you have a study that shows a different type of therapy, but drug B works. But you don't really know how well they go together if they were studied in completely separate studies. Correct. In your study, are you going to be able to give advice about how different treatments work together? Yes.
1: Yes, that's another huge advantage of this. So for example, the whole world is trying different antivirals. An antiviral would hopefully stop the speed at which the virus is replicating. We're also interested in studying drugs that dampen the host immune response. Now, a drug that dampens the immune response might be terrific once you have the virus under check, but could be disastrous if you're giving it in the presence of an ineffective antiviral. And so those people that are studying things like steroids or immune modulators, it would be nice to know if the effect is modulated by the presence or absence of effective antivirals.
0: Right. And you will be able to answer that question. Yes. Wow. Let me just say that I think uh, I've heard a lot that this pandemic is really going to require a tremendous amount of science and ingenuity. And what you're doing is really remarkable for bringing enormous amount of science and ingenuity to the task. And thank you so much for taking time to explain this all to me. Thanks, Josh. Thank you for listening to Public Health On Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Please send questions to be covered in future podcasts to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. This podcast is produced by Josh Sharfstein, Lindsay Smith-Rogers, and Lamare Morales. Audio production by Niall Owen McCusker and Spencer Greer, with support from Chip Hickey. Distribution by Nick Moran. Thank you for listening.